Postmodern philosophers insist there is no such thing as absolute truth, a truth of which they are absolutely certain. As influential as this philosophy is in our day, we who are followers of Jesus Christ absolutely disagree. We know that there is truth. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ who personifies absolute truth. He declared, I am the truth. Truth is anything that corresponds to God. Falsehood is anything that does not align with God as the originating source and the perfection of truth. This means that synchronizing our lives with the truth is utterly essential for our joy and spiritual health as God's children. It also means then that when we embrace the lie, when we come under the influence of deception, it means that when we believe falsehood, it is always destructive to our soul, even if we're not aware of it. It is harmful on some level. To embrace non-truth is like withholding the sun from a plant. Our soul withers in the darkness of falsehood and it thrives in the sunlight of God's truth. And so as those who embrace absolute truth, we seek to align our lives with it, to seek it out, and to submit to its light. And we reject then the widely held notion that people can believe whatever they want to believe without consequence. It's simply not the case. Rather, we pursue the truth of God seeking to align our lives with it so that our souls thrive to His glory and for our own joy. But embracing this countercultural pursuit of absolute truth does not mean that we would ever come to the place where we say, I know all truth. We cannot fully know the mind of God due to our finiteness. He is the source of truth. We come to know who He is, but we could never know Him entirely. We cannot know fully the mind of God due to our sinfulness. And even when the truth of God is revealed in black and white in the pages of Scripture, there are things we simply cannot grasp. They're beyond us. We should not imagine, however, that this means such truths are unimportant. Because I can't grasp it, I just ignore it. Let's think, for instance, of the history of the church and the discussion of the deity of Jesus Christ. For many generations, this was a matter that was greatly debated. I mean, we've not had any practice at this. Someone taking on, God taking on flesh and becoming a human being. And so to understand the text of Scripture, to understand the person of Jesus Christ, there were many generations of discussion and formulation to understand that He is fully God and fully man. That He came to earth taking on flesh as one person with two natures. Through time, we've come to understand what the Bible has revealed. And today, we stand solidly on that understanding of who Jesus Christ is. It was always known. It was revealed to the apostles. But it takes us time sometimes to grasp the difficulties of Scripture. Today then, the debate is not so much with Bible-believing Christians over the deity of Christ, but when we merge into the realm of eschatology, then we find continuing confusion. Eschatology is what the Bible teaches about end times. What is going to come in the end? What are we facing? There's widespread confusion about the return of Christ and the timing of the events that we find in these end times. In fact, faithful, godly followers of Jesus are greatly divided. This is not the case now with the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but at this juncture in history where we find ourselves, the church remains in great confusion on this matter. Now what would we do if we were counseling from our position here, looking back in time, those early Christians that were debating whether Jesus Christ was fully man or not? We'd say, don't ignore this. Keep working, keep striving, keep seeking to understand. You maybe felt that way when you were taking algebra. It just, it, it just cannot be understood. It's impossible. But as you just keep working on it, slowly the lights come on, and yeah, this works. I see this. I'm beginning to understand it. That's what we must continue to do with Scripture. And that's where we are today, like some were with the deity of Christ in the area of eschatology. We need to just keep working. 
the lights need to come on. The temptation is to avoid eschatology. In fact, today's text is one of the most frustrating that I've ever dealt with in my studies in some 20 years in speaking to this church. I mentioned there's a telling little scene I'll give you here. I mentioned that to Beth this week and said I think this is one of the hardest sermons that I've ever written. And without a moment's delay, she said, harder than Daniel? I preached through the book of Daniel. It's interesting that right away she connected with another eschatological book. And she remembers the pain of those days. That was back in the spring and the summer of the year that we entered into the second half of Daniel a number of years ago. And during that section of time in my life, and I, all qualifiers stated that this is horrible, but the goal was to get to bed on Saturday night before the birds started to sing. And if I could get to bed before the birds started to sing, it was a good week. That was tough sledding. The second half of Daniel is hard stuff. And good, godly, faithful people believe different things about what's in there. And that's what makes it so hard. You want to listen to what they're all saying and try to be honest with the interpretation of the text. And it doesn't come very easily. One of the joys of my life as a preacher of the Gospel in this congregation is to stand before you and say, this is what the Lord says. And so I find it really frustrating when I come before you and say, this is hard to understand. You know, there's some believers like that who think that truth is absolute and therefore they have it. And if you will just read the Bible, you will have the absolute truth. You will know everything. They're really fools. Because the truth of God at times stretches higher than us. In fact, it probably always does, whether we know it or not. There are some things we can't fully know. And the temptation then is to avoid such topics. And that's one of the beauties of preaching through a book of Scripture. You're forced to deal with eschatological passages, knowing that there's good, godly people who differ on these ideas. But you plow through anyway that we might do what the early church eras needed to do, and that's plow through the doctrine of the deity of Christ so we continue to search in the areas of eschatology and end time events. Having said all of this, we must recognize that embracing false ideas about end times is unhealthy for believers. That's hard to say because we're saying we don't know entirely the right answers. We don't see it all the way that we should, but that doesn't mean that we're not harmed by false ideas. So we strive to understand. And this is a lesson that we learn again today from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian believers. We'll be looking there in a moment. But as we move back into this end times discussion today, which is important for us, because it's in Scripture, we, got, we must start with the big pieces. First, let's remember, is the return of Christ. Secondly, is the great tribulation. And thirdly, is the millennium, the reign of Christ, whether taken literally or not, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The return of Christ, the tribulation, we find described in the book of Revelation and the millennium. Remembering that many Bible believers who are every bit as sincere about the truth and honoring God as we are, believe the Bible teaches that Christ will return after the millennium. That He will come after the millennium, which is not a literal thousand year period, to set up the eternal state, post-millennialism. There are others godly, faithful people who are amillennialists, that they believe that there really is no physical kingdom, no millennium that's actual in, in, will be realized in physical terms. The problem is that the method of biblical interpretation necessary to come to these conclusions is weak on a number of levels, it would seem to us, as we understand the interpretation of Scripture. And so we must respectfully disagree with the method of interpretation that leads to amillennialism or to postmillennialism. And several weeks ago, we established an understanding of premillennialism, which we draw largely from the book of Revelation. I invite you to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 at verse 11, 
we find the return of Christ described in flowery language, certainly, but I think in unmistakable language. Though some would deny that this is the coming of Christ, it seems fairly straightforward. Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So we have one coming from heaven with the hosts of heaven to rule on earth with a rod of iron, treading the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I think a natural reading of this text of Scripture, although it is flowery language, it's poetically written in some sense, it would lead to the understanding that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His return to earth. We come then to chapter 20 in verse 1, and John writes, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We have the return of Christ, we have now the reference to the millennium, the thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Christ reigns over this period of a thousand years while Satan is bound. Then I saw, verse 4, thrones and seated on them were those who to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. King of kings, Lord of lords, on earth, reigning for a thousand years with these who are resurrected. Parenthetical statement, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. There's no reason for them to be resurrected yet. The judgment has not come. We're entering into this millennial thousand-year reign. This, referring back to those who have come to life in Christ, is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Are you getting the theme here? and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The emphasis is made throughout that there will be the reign of Christ for a thousand years with His saints. So, I picture it this way. As a church, in our doctrinal statement where we stand on these end-time events, premillennialism, that Christ will come first and then establish His millennial rule, is the eschatological house in which we reside. We come into that house, and though we respect and appreciate amillennialists and postmillennialists, this is our house. Premillennialism. It seems to be the most straightforward interpretation. And if someone would come into our church that holds the poster amillennialism, we would certainly welcome them depending on their agenda. But we would say there will be times when the interpretation of Scripture here runs into your interpretation in how you've gotten where you've gotten. In other words, the interpretation you've used to get to amillennialism will at times conflict with the interpretation that we consistently use in this church. So we're in the premillennial house. Now, in that house, there's a table. And seated at that table are other premillennialists who also disagree. But I would picture them as in our house, as at our table, as in genuine fellowship saying this, some, that Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation. So we're all in agreement that He will come before the millennium, 
But some would say that he comes at the end of the tribulation period described in Revelation. This seven-year period, whether taken literally or not. Premillennialists, which would be our doctrinal statement, say that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. Then Jesus will return seven years later to set up His millennial kingdom. I belabor this point because the present passage is read differently by pre-tribulationalists and post-tribulationalist interpreters, and I think that we will find as we work our way through that the differences are fairly subtle. So I think it's important that we read this book and this passage at the same table in the house of premillennialism, but we must give credence to both positions at least as we discuss it and understand it, knowing where our statement is doctrinally as a church. All of that said, let's go to the text. And know that first of all, we encounter a problem. We're now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, there's some false teaching concerning end times that has come to trouble the church. And so these matters are addressed. Verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And while it goes with what follows, let's say it here, let no one deceive you in this way. There was a deception, a falsehood that was taking place. So the situation, they'd come under this influence of false teaching about end time events, and that, namely, that the day of the Lord had already begun. That is, the judgment of God had begun to fall. Now Paul does not reveal the source of this false teaching. In fact, it kind of comes across like he might not really know. He says it might be a spirit, which was probably a code word for a prophecy. Someone claiming revelation from God and prophesying to the church that the day of the Lord had begun. Or it might be, he says here, a spoken word. That's fairly obvious. A false teacher comes in among the church and says the day of the Lord has come. Or maybe a false letter. Perhaps forged with Paul's signature. We see in chapter 3 and verse 17 that he says, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. He didn't say that anywhere else in any other letter. So perhaps there was someone who sent the letter that had Paul's name forged and it said, we are in the day of the Lord. Whatever the source, the Thessalonian church had come to think that the day of the Lord had come. That's the key point. And what was the effect? What did we read? They were shaken in their mind. They were alarmed. The Greek word one describes as a state of jumpiness. They were, they were really concerned and agitated by this. Paul calls them to turn away from the path that they're on. We believe the day of the Lord has come. We're agitated and shaken by it. And rather to move forward in a different direction. We'll get to that in a moment. But, verse 1, we enter onto a very subtle and major distinction between pre- and post-tribulationalism. And we need to consider this. In verse 1, Paul refers to the rapture or the catching up of believers to Christ. Now, though post-tribulationalists don't typically use the word rapture, they believe in a rapture. All believe in premillennialism that there is a catching up of the church to Christ. That's what's described here in verse 1 concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. There's the return of Christ to catch up His people in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. If you remember, as we considered this not long ago, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, we are told, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. It's to this that he's referring. This catching up of the body of believers. Now notice the word here, concerning. And here it gets fairly subtle. Hang in there. But we have here a Greek word, huper, a very simple preposition now concerning the coming of our Lord. And we move right past that really not thinking. 
But if this little word is taken with the sense of about, now, about, that is, I want to talk to you about the coming of Christ, then the entire passage deals with the coming of Christ and would very much lend itself to a post-tribulational view. But if this word is taken in the sense of on the basis of or by, then Paul is saying that he's teaching them about the day of the Lord in light of the rapture of the church. That would be a pre-tribulational position. Paul does not say you cannot be in the day of the Lord right now because you will be raptured first. That would be a fairly straightforward way of saying it. He doesn't say that. But that's what a pre-tribulational position would say essentially is his point. On the basis of, or by this return of Christ to catch up on his own, you're not in the day of the Lord. He does say a number of things about the day of the Lord that would seem to not be necessary, but then again, we know Paul, and he's always teaching, and he says some things that perhaps aren't necessary. He teaches more than meets the eye here as he talks about the day of the Lord, but from a pre-tribulational standpoint, this is on the basis of the catching away of the church that we come to know we're not in the day of the Lord. Now, there's a significant tension here then. Post-tribulationalists see the return of Christ as a single event. This is important, and if you say I'm losing it, come back to me right here. Post-trib, the coming of Christ is one event. And indeed, many of the references to Christ's return in the New Testament are to this one event. This, This coming, this actual coming to earth to set up the millennium. Post-tribulationists see all of the New Testament references simply to that, to that one event, that one coming. Pre-tribulationalism has us think a bit differently about it, and it says that there is one singular idea to the coming of Christ, but there are two aspects to it that straddle the seven-year tribulation. So there is the rapture, the catching up of the church before this seven-year tribulation, and then there is the second coming of Christ formally after it, on which all premillennialists agree. Christ will come to earth after the tribulation. But the premillennialist believes that there is a first aspect to this in the catching up of believers before the tribulation. So Christ raptures the church at the start of the trib, coming to earth for His church, Christ returns to the earth with His church to set up the millennial kingdom. How one takes that little preposition "huper" here steers us one way or the other. It's that subtle. Now, obviously, there's other texts of Scripture, other things to consider. But on just this passage, that really is the divide between how we understand this passage. If we take it as concerning or about This is a post-tribulational support, this passage. If we take it as by, uh, we would see it as a pre-tribulational text. Well, what does Paul teach the church? Let's run through this. We'll work fairly quickly through it. But I think it is important that we come to understand what he's actually saying. We understand the situation. They're troubled. They believe the day of the Lord has come, that the judgment of God is falling. But he says, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Here's the truth. And the truth matters. That day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This son of destruction, this lawless one, will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Well, that's not happened. And you're not in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, will not take place prior to this development, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. I think that means one who's going to receive destruction, not destroy others, although there's some of that involved as well. But this lawless one, this one who is against God and His Word, will be revealed. Now, who is this guy? Here's where the murkiness comes. He doesn't tell us. 
who this one is, in fact. He just simply refers to him as the lawless one. The, the, the Thessalonian believers apparently understood precisely who this was. We don't, and so it's really almost humorous to see the number of individuals in history that have been identified as the lawless one. Some of it reveals a little bit of history, and just read between the blanks here. Some have suggested that the lawless one is the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope. Others have suggested that the lawless one is Martin Luther. <laughs> you imagine the context that comes from. Uh, whoever your enemy is, that's the lawless one. And uh, they've gone so far to say Luther was so bad, the Pope was so bad, that they are the lawless one. Well, others have actually even gone so far as to say it's a reincarnate Nero, a reincarnate Judas Iscariot, or even Napoleon or Mussolini are the lawless one. There's people who seriously write that they think that's who it is. If we look to Scripture idea there's only really one evidence it seems to me that would indicate that scripture helps us with who this lawless one is verse 4 here recalls the prophet daniel's writings as he speaks of an antichrist who exalts himself as god now there in the book of daniel it's just a developing theme but he speaks of this one who stands to exalt himself as god at the heart of of where God is to be worshipped in Israel. In any event, then, this person appears to enter, we see here, a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and imitating Satan, seeks to usurp the throne of God. This lawless, lawless one will arise, who will take the place of God, exalt himself as God, and seek the worship of others, proclaiming himself to be God. This will come before the day of the Lord. Paul writes, verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? They're hard to grasp. The Thessalonian believers didn't quite get it. And Paul's saying, yeah, we did talk about this, you remember. One of the problems for us as we receive the revelation from his writings is that because they talk together, he assumes some things about their knowledge which we don't particularly have. And I leave that in the Holy Spirit's hands and say for some reason He didn't choose to take the murkiness out of the water here. As He says in verse 6, You know what is restraining Him, so that He may be revealed in His time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only He who now restrains it will do so until He is out of the way. If you read those verses and say, Huh? Uh, what, what's that talking about? It, well, that's right. There's murkiness there. What, what restraining influence and what restraining one? And first we see it's pre presented in verse 6 as an influence. What is restraining this lawless one? In verse 7, it's pictured as a person. Only he who now restrains. Pre-tribulationalism has consistently understood the one restraining and the force of restraint as the influence of the Holy Spirit. So the picture is, and follow this, the picture is the Holy Spirit will wrap His arms around restraining, so to speak, the lawless one until a certain point in time when He will be taken out of the way and the lawless one will be free to run in His lawlessness. Post-tribulationalists, there may be an agenda here, but they are very adamant about the fact that this is not the Holy Spirit. I don't think that they would, it would necessarily destroy their position not to hold that it is. But if you see where this is going, the pre-tribulationalist says the Holy Spirit's restrained ending is when the rapture takes place. Post-tribulationalist doesn't want to see that, and so comes over here and says that it's not really the idea of restraint, it's really the idea of seizure. And so the one holding the lawless one is actually Satan. Many would hold. Now there's different views, and I can't describe them all. But Satan is seizing this individual and controlling this individual until a point in time when the, this when Satan is taken out of the way and this lawless one runs on his own agenda. 
I think right here, pre-tribulationalism has scored a couple more baskets. Uh, First of all, the idea of restraint is the natural way of understanding the verb. That's the normal way you would take it. That it's a matter of holding back, not of owning. Now, it can be taken as owning, but that's not the normal use. The second thing is, does that strike you as kind of odd? Satan seizes and grasps this lawless one until a certain point where he lets him go, and then the lawless one actually gets worse. That's a a weakness in in that view. So it seems seems to be most natural to say that the Holy Spirit restrains the man's full expression of depravity until a certain point when he lets go and the lawless one runs wild. Well, whatever the case, there will come a day when the lawless one, verse 8, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. Here's how we have to read that. The lawless one will be revealed. Break. There's some time that passes. And then the Lord Jesus will kill Him with the breath of His mouth. That is, with the Word of God. There's an intriguing passage here, a parallel here to Revelation 19 that we read earlier. Remember, we don't need to turn there, but just in verses 13 and 15, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. You see that there here? By the breath of His mouth, He destroys this lawless one. He's called the Word of God in Revelation 19. From His mouth, that text says, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Nations make war with Him, verse 19. Then He throws the beast and the false prophet into hell. It all seems to jive well. Christ will destroy this lawless one, post and pre-tribulationalists entirely agreeing on that point. Now Paul clarifies concerning this lawless one, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Let's leave that last comment go for a while. But we see here this false end-time religion of sorts. It's a counterfeit of God's work in the church. How did God establish the church? By signs and wonders by the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, here we have, under the influence of Satan, a lawless one who uses signs and wonders to draw worship to himself. This day will come. It is wise that we know of it. You're not in the day of the Lord because the day is not here yet, he says to them. But this counterfeit church will arise. This counterfeit orientation to uh, the lawless one as God. Why now, to the latter part of verse 10, why are unbelievers destroyed with the lawless one? The answer, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Did you hear that? Now there's all this pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill. I'm not following this. You might say, this you follow. Is there truth? And does it matter? We notice here that it it is a failure to love the truth that leads to destruction. That destruction is fleshed out in verses 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They don't want to love the truth. So God, as human and divine working together here, God sends a strong delusion. The delusion is, in fact, their lack of love for the truth. But they are deluded so that they buy into the deception of the age In order, verse 12, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you gain nothing else today, we must grasp the fact that truth matters, that it is a matter of life and death. We have here in verse 11 echoes of Eden as Satan's deception of Eve. In Satan's deception of Eve, there is a deceptiveness, a a, a falsehood that is pressed, a, a worship of self that is introduced in the garden. And so we have in these end times, there will be a deception, a delusion that is strong as people reject the truth and embrace falsehood and unrighteousness. You cannot 
And I say this so important for our culture. You cannot believe whatever you want. You cannot believe anything that you choose without consequence. What you genuinely believe, the truth that you embrace and love, is the difference between life and death. Truth is the sun that grows the plant of your soul. The word condemnation here, a word used in jurisprudence, meaning the judgment against a convicted offender. That is, there is the truth of God's law. There is the truth of God's character. And we do not by nature line up to that truth. Are you running in your own direction, seeking to be the God of your own life? You're running against the truth of God and you must turn because judgment is coming on those who do not love the truth. We cannot make up the truth. We cannot believe whatever we wish. We must align ourselves with the source of all goodness and truth in this world. And that is our God and Creator. We must embrace the truth that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the only provision of the forgiveness of sin. We must embrace the truth and love it. I've used this line at times in the past with those who are unbelievers that I'm seeking to lead to faith in Christ. I've sometimes laid out the simple elements of the Gospel. We are sinners. Christ has come to rescue us from our sin by paying the sin's penalty rising from the dead. We can gain this salvation only as a gift. Only the justice of God can be placed on our account. We cannot earn it. We must trust in what Jesus did. And then I ask the question, if you could write the script of the universe, would you like that story? Because what is so often the case with the rejection of the Gospel is that's not how we want it to be. There are many people, in fact, today going to churches who are running from the truth of the Gospel by sitting in those locations and seeking to please God by their good works. That's how they want it to be. They don't want it to be salvation by grace alone. You see, at the end of the day, it's not we who are going to put God in the dock and ask Him the questions. It's going to be He who puts us in the dock and asks us the questions. And in that day, truth will absolutely matter. Are you embracing the truth of salvation in Christ? Are you embracing the Gospel? It absolutely matters. We can't always grasp it all. We can't grasp it with absolute assurance. We must learn to appreciate the truth and pursue it with all our heart, knowing its utter importance. But false doctrine is not merely our opinion. It is dangerous, and we must leave it. A few more moments, if I could press us. I'd like to look, then, just in summary, at some of the crucial beliefs of pre-tribulationalism and post-tribulationalism. First of all, in the pre-trib position, we're going to kind of go over this academic piece, and then we'll come and conclude in a few moments. Jesus' return, we have to understand this to understand the position, it encompasses two phases. The catching up, the rapture of the church when Christ returns for His church, and the second coming when Jesus returns with His saints to set up the millennial kingdom. In contrast, post-tribulationalism looks at the New Testament references to the return of Christ and envisions a unitary event. They all are speaking of one phase and one thing. The rapture takes place when Jesus returns to set up the millennial kingdom. Secondly, in the pre-trib side, the rapture is imminent. Nothing more must happen until Jesus raptures the church. The post-tribber looks at that as imminency applies to an entire complex of end-time events. There is discussion of imminency, but it's understood in a little different way. Thirdly, under pre-trib, the trib is the outpouring of God's wrath and God's promises to keep the church from experiencing His wrath. I think this is really the most solid argument in favor of pre-tribulationalism. Let me just note that briefly in Revelation chapter 6. I want you to ask the question, does the tribulation in the book of Revelation 
constitute the wrath of God? Is God's wrath being outpoured during the tribulation time? Ask that question in light of Revelation 6 and verse 16. Those who are rebelling against Christ call for the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It is the wrath of God, and what follows now in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation, uh, is the outworking of that wrath. Is that a different wrath than is referred to elsewhere? That would have to be something we assume. It is a time of the wrath of God. To First Thessalonians, or rather, to Revelation chapter three and verse ten, speaking to a church, the church at Philadelphia. We read this three ten of Revelation: Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now you don't have to be very awake to know that the trial on the earth in the book of Revelation is this tribulation, described as the outflow of the wrath of God at the very beginning of that tribulation. So I think this is the strongest argument for pre-tribulationalism, the outpouring of God's wrath and His promise to keep the church from experiencing. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9, there is such a promise to these Thessalonian believers. 5.9 of 1 Thessalonians, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a pretty strong argument. However, in the subtleties of the discussion, a Bible-believing post-tribulationalist would say, I believe that. I just believe that He preserves the church through the tribulation. Now, Revelation 3.10 is going to be a stumbling block to that view, but a post-tribulationalist would say, I too believe that he preserves his people from, the wrath, from his wrath, but he does so by protecting them through the tribulation so that they endure to the end and are saved. Trouble spots for these two views. I'm going to try to be very honest with these, with these trouble points. First of all, pre-tribulationalism, the two-stage coming of Christ is inferred, never explicitly declared in the Scripture. That's why people aren't pre-tribulationalists, because it never says, there's going to be a rapture and seven years later there's going to be the return of Christ. It doesn't say it quite that way. It's inferred. To see the return of Christ as a single event is many times the most natural way to read the applicable text. This is one of the challenges to pre-tribulationalism. Now, I will add here, that the pre-tribulationalists will stand in and say it's not a real problem. Because you'll remember in the Old Testament that there was a belief that Jesus would come once. They knew He would come in suffering. They knew He would come in triumph. They didn't understand how that all worked together, but there was one coming of Christ. When we got further into it, we found out there were two. So they would argue that's the same thing that's happening here. It looks like one return of Christ. Many texts are read straightforwardly that way, but as we put the pieces together, we are discerning that there are two aspects to this return. It's a trouble spot. It's not unanswerable. Secondly, on this text that we've looked at today, why does Paul not simply say, listen, you're not in the day of the Lord because you'll be raptured first. Why spend so much time, so much text, comforting his readers by mentioning events in the tribulation that they will never experience? Again, the argument can be Paul's always teaching things other than what he's just teaching. But that is a place that we have to consider. Why say it this way? In light of the rapture of the church, these things will take place before the day of the Lord begins. There's some confusion to us there. The post-tribulationalist position, when it comes to this passage, I ask, are we to imagine that the essence of Paul's encouragement is this, you haven't seen anything yet, but be comforted, you have at least 42 months before it could get really bad. Now that's, that's maybe not playing fair, but it really is the honest challenge to this position. You're not in the day of the Lord, is what Paul is saying. 
but you might be in about three and a half years. So that's his only point here, is just to teach about what's going to happen during the uh, tribulation period, and they may well be in it very soon. That seems to conflict a bit with the agenda of the text. That doesn't mean that's not answerable. It could be that's all Paul is saying. Secondly, why mention the rapture in verse 1 if it comes after the tribulation? The rapture is irrelevant to Paul's point if the church passes through the tribulation. You're wrong that you're in the day of the Lord. Why even mention the rapture? That's at the end of it all anyway. It really doesn't seem to be a point to it. Thirdly, there's no satisfying reason provided for why or how the restrainer's work ends, nor how this chain spurs the rebellion of the lawless one. Remember that? Satan has seized him, so when Satan quits seizing him, why does he run crazy in lawlessness? That's really not answered. Now, there are answers to these things. These are just challenges that we need to face. Thank you. But staking in our minds how important truth is, we need to not shy away from investigating these things while admitting that eschatology is confusing. There's much we do not know. There are people who are so adamant about their position, they have it all right, they absolutely know it. We're not really there. They're really foolish. There are good, faithful, godly people who are seeking to interpret the Scriptures as we do that do not come out at exactly the same place. I think we need to treat one another with respect and with continuing investigation. Not saying truth doesn't matter. Not saying we avoid these things. But saying there is a level of murkiness that we must honestly admit. I don't know why it's so seemingly nebulous. I don't know why it's not clearer. I do not know why, but I do know it's God's truth and we need to pursue it diligently. But after all the debates are set aside, the most important consideration here is what? It's not written this text to present post or pre-tribulationalism, really. It's written to say that Jesus will return and that we will be with Him for all eternity if we love the truth and have embraced the Gospel. If I'm raptured without a moment's notice into His presence, I must live my life in preparation that that could be at any moment. That's how I'll live my life. If I must endure the tribulation, I need to be preparing every day for the spiritual rigor such a call would entail. I shouldn't go out and build a bunker if you're convinced of post-tribulationalism. What you should be doing is building the bunker of your soul to endure. So in any event, we're being prepared for what is going to take place. The any moment rapture of the believer, or should we find out that we must endure the tribulation? We are seeking to be people of perseverance and faith and depth in our trust in the Lord. And that's in the end what matters. This passage locks then into that great biblical theme that what is at issue here is God with us. Israel's hope as we read of it in Ezekiel 37 and 48 is God with us. That's the whole orientation of the Old Testament. Is As remember the tabernacle, God's presence came to be with His people in that tabernacle. The whole concept is God is dwelling with His people. That glory has left Israel. But there will be a day of return when God will be with us. And that's the theme of Scripture. What was Jesus called? Emmanuel. God with us. He was with us in the person of Christ. And why do we gather here on the Lord's Day? For one reason, we gather to prophesy of our gathering of, of, the gathering of all the nations before the Lord in the presence of Christ. This is a small gathering of people from various nations of this world that have come to know Him, but someday we will gather before the throne of Christ. We prophesy that event. Then the eternal hope, Revelation 22. Let me read that for us as we think on <clears throat> God with us and notice, <clears throat> <clears throat> notice this theme as it works itself out in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. 
and of the Lamb through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree, or for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will, know, they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever with Him. That's this great hope. And you know what is probably the greatest problem of Eden Baptist Church when it comes to eschatological ideas? It's not that we think that the day of the Lord has come. It's that we think that the coming of Christ is irrelevant. That's our eschatological struggle. We live every day and how often do we consider Jesus is coming again? Overwhelmed by the cares of this world, we lose our love for seeing Christ living in preparation for the rapture or living in preparation to endure to the end of the tribulation, trusting in Christ. But we lose sight of the importance of Jesus with us and us with Him forever. We gather then on the Lord's day to remind ourselves in part Jesus is coming again. We serve a risen Savior. We come and we sing them with hope and purpose. When He comes, our glorious King. Not if He comes, but when He comes. This is our hope. Our glorious King. All His ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's the Savior we worship. That's the Savior to whom we must look. That's the Savior whose coming should order every inch of our lives. He will come. Do you love the truth? Do you love the Savior? Do you love His appearing? And do you live as if you do? This is our eschatological challenge. Our end time weakness. To anticipate and to want and to love the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Our Father, help us to love His return. Bring Jesus to come. We don't understand all things. We could be wrong in many areas. But we know this. He'll come. And I pray that He'll find us ready and watching and if you choose to take us in death first, we know that to die is gain, and then we know that we will rise with those who are alive at His coming. And in this we find our soul's strength. May we trust it. To the glory of our Savior we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and turn in your hymnals, if you will, to 311. 311.